Yes, you'll read the big black headlines about Norma Desmond and this Hollywood scandal. But you'll never read the true story about the rest of us who were part of it. Me, for instance, Joe Gillis, a promising young writer from Dayton, Ohio. And Betty, that nice kid I met at a Hollywood party who knew nothing about me, but knew what she wanted. Don't you love Artie? Of course I love him. I always will. I'm just not in love with him anymore. What happened? Who did? Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. It's Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. As always, I'm Kristen, joined once again by Samantha, who is back. Yay, we missed you. And we have... Probably the most special guest of all the special guests that we've had. I mean, no disrespect to Haley Mills and Ruta Lee, who we love, but I don't know. I'm freaking out that we have the amazing Nancy Olson Livingston with us today. Nancy, how are you? Well, as a matter of fact, I could be a lot better. (laughs) I have done something terrible to my back, which is a little mysterious, but I'm wearing a brace which helps a little, but hopefully let's pray that I get over this and it heals and it's over. So forgive me for maybe sounding a little unhappy. <laughs> so sorry. We hope you feel better. Thank you. Especially now you have an amazing accomplishment, one of several under your belt. You just put out your autobiography, which is a delight. I've read it, Samantha. I know you also read it. I had a lot of fun with it. I don't know about you, Samantha. It's a wonderful read. There are so many aspects of your life that I never would have even considered being a part of your life. I was a fan of your films, but I didn't really know much about your marriage to the great Alan Lerner's. And then to Alan Livingston. That was just such a fascinating aspect of your life. And Being around so many famous minds from the 20th century, I never would have guessed opening your book that that's what I would be reading about. Well, I'm delighted that you enjoyed it. I want to start with the generic question that I know everybody asks, but as a budding author and a person that writes all the time, I have to ask the question, what made you want to finally sit down and tell your story In 1986, which is a long time ago, I was remarried, happily, living in Los Angeles. My daughters, Liza Lerner, Liza and Jenny, were living in New York. And Alan Lerner was in the hospital dying. They were calling me every day for support and to make them feel a little better. The morning of whatever that date in 1986... They called me and they said he died. I talked to them and I said, well, you know, we'll talk later. I sat down and I started writing them a letter, which is the beginning of my book. In the letter, I tell them that I'm going to now tell you the story of your parents, their life together, their life with you. What happened in general? You will hear everything that I can remember and know. And then guess what? I put that letter away 
And about four years later, I picked it up. And I thought, my goodness, I have not really done what I said I was going to do. So I started writing the book. I have an odd technique of writing. I start with a chapter, what I want to say, what I want you to know. So I write that in longhand and just deal with it. Then I had a young woman, there have been many over the years, come in and sit at the computer, and I sat right beside her, and I would start to tell her the story that I had written. Many times, so that I had, by the way, the experience of not only hearing my voice tell the story, but I would also be reading it on the computer. I had the benefit of hearing my voice tell the story. Did it sound interesting? Was it correct? And I also had the ability to read on paper or on the computer what it looked like in print. And was it expressing exactly what I wanted to say? And I just finished it maybe a year ago. And I was sent to the publishers at the University of Wisconsin. I was born and raised, as you remember, in Milwaukee. (laughs) There were three people involved in picking out which books. The woman was on vacation. The two men read the book and sent it. The university sent it to published authors. And they did a critique and sent it back. And I still have those critiques. They said at the very end, each one of them, you must publish this book. The other one, I highly recommend that you publish this book. Well, guess what happened? The woman came back and read the book. And she said, no, 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 it's not academic enough. And I kind of forgot about it. But then my friend, Alan Rohde, sent it to Kentucky, to the University of Kentucky Press. And they said, yes, we want to publish this. So here we are. We should say Alan Rohde is a good friend of ours as well. We've been fortunate to have him on the podcast before. So yay, it all comes back in the classic film community. Yes. (laughs) Not to mention University Press of Kentucky. We've talked to several of the authors and they seem like the most progressive publisher in terms of publishing classic film related books right now. It seems like a perfect fit. That's good to know. A lot of the really great biographies that I've read in the last few years, we just talked about the Jane Russell book that came out the University Press of Kentucky. If you want to publish a classic movie book, you guys, it seems to be the place. Oh, that's interesting. I'm glad I'm in the right place. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a nerd that likes to talk about the process. And reading your book, it almost feels like I am listening to you tell a story. You have these moments where you talk about certain things and then it flows into talking about Sunset Boulevard or your relationships. When you're sitting down to start telling a story. Most people, when they talk about, tell me the story of your life, it's like beginning to end. But this has a very lyrical, I hate the word dreamlike, because that's so overused. It does feel like you could really open this book to any chapter and learn something new. How did you want to approach telling your story? How did you look at what you wanted to tell about your time in this industry? I felt that I had a story beyond the movie 
business and my experiences in making motion pictures. And that I was married to two very interesting men with experiences with them. When I made Sunset Boulevard, which was the second film I made, I did a film called Canadian Pacific at 20th Century Fox with, I forget his name, but anyway, he was older than my father. And I was supposed to be someone who was partially Indian, Canadian Indian. And I'm a blue-eyed Scandinavian, and it's in color. And I thought, I don't believe this. They, they should rethink this. And I called the talent department, and they said, no, 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 they want you. So at least I had the experience from that of working with a camera, a director, being on the set, interacting with other actors and the whole crew. So when I did Sunset Boulevard, I knew what to expect. When I did Sunset, I was still trying to finish my university at UCLA and that program. It was almost impossible because I would arrive at the studio at seven in the morning for hair and makeup. Then we started shooting at nine and the A pictures, the ones that the big pictures, you finished at six, no matter what. Many independent films went on till nine. <laughs> and that was six days a week, by the way. And here I was just about to be 21. And I'm on a dark, dark soundstage with the crew that I was interacting with. And my friends at UCLA, they treated me differently because I was now on my way to be, quote unquote, a movie star. I didn't have time to be with them anyway. I spent the entire day there with a makeup man, hairdresser, the assistant director, my cast. And I thought, is this what being a movie star is all about? Also, I was working with the publicist who was exaggerating who I was. An example of when I was doing a movie in Hawaii, they published a story in one of the trades, all of the trades, that I had been on a cliff at midnight in Honolulu, took off all my clothes, and jumped in. Now, I'm sorry, that never happened, nor would it ever happen. So I talked to him and I said, you cannot publish anything like this ever again please. So I began to realize that we were being, we were commodities. And that's what Sunset Boulevard is all about, by the way. It tells the truth about being a movie star. And when the commodity is something you want to sell, so you hype it, you make it more glamorous than it is, more sexy, more whatever. And if you're a very vulnerable person, like Marilyn Monroe, it ends up in a tragedy. And that's really the story of Sunset Boulevard, how really it was about profit, creating a movie star. And then you were thrown away when you were not as beautiful or as sexy or as whatever. Now, there's obviously professional actors and actresses like Meryl Streep. Anyway, when I got married after making four films at Paramount, I don't want to be a movie star anymore. None of them were released, including Sunset Boulevard. And I married Alan Lerner and moved to New York and said goodbye. 
didn't mean that I wanted to end up acting because I did three plays on Broadway. And then when Sunset came out, there was so much pressure on my working that when Alan came out to do a a script of Brigadoon and Royal Wedding, we rented a house, brought our little girls. He said, look, they want you to do X, Y, or Z. Why don't you do it? And so I kept going in that regard. And a long answer to a short question. I'm sorry. Canadian Pacific, for people that don't remember, it was Randolph Scott. who oh, was. Randolph Scott. Thanks. Yeah. I always confuse all of the movies where Randolph Scott played a cowboy because he played so many. <laughs> Can I just say, though, that I think it is completely, completely amazing that a lot of stars don't realize what they want in their careers until long after they have that sex, drugs, and rock and roll element to it. And then they realize, oh, I don't want to do this. Reading your book, you had such a clear idea of what you wanted to do to be able to be like, I'm just going to walk away and move to New York. That is so amazing. I'm sure other stars have done something similar to that. But to say that right before Sunset and all of this happens, very baller. I love it. (laughs) It was after Sunset Boulevard, the shooting of Enduring that I felt very strongly about. And also, by the way, how many actresses, real movie stars, had successful marriages and families? Now, I'm a Midwestern girl. My father was a doctor. My mother was a school teacher. I had an image of my life with being a wife, a mother, and having a partner in the world. And that was rare. It's interesting. I've thought about it, actually. Why is that? It's really amazing how grounded you've been through all the years, because there are so many movie stars, especially from the golden era, that were so quick to flash their gems and husbands and all their drama. By the way, my nickname in college, my first year at University of Wisconsin, my nickname was Wholesome Olson. So I was truly a Midwestern girl. My parents were much more interested that I finish college than I be a movie star. That was more important to them to complete that, which I never did, by the way, almost. But I just got overwhelmed. I just could not handle it all. Certainly my education continued, but not necessarily in school. Right. I mean, you had so many different life experiences. One of the other things that's so amazing about your career is you talk about how miscast you felt for Canadian Pacific, but then life hands you this script for Sunset Boulevard. And it's just such a good fit. That's really what all of the critics seem to agree after its release is just the way that you present her on screen is so refreshing. This young woman who wants to be a writer. And I think it's really inspired so many generations of female writers moving forward. Oh my goodness. I hope you're right about that. What's interesting, I would go to school in the morning and then they, I'd rush to Paramount to go and visit and just walk around and look at Bing Crosby and Barbara Stanwyck and Betty Hutton and all these people, Jerry Lewis and Dean. And then I'd go into the commissary and I'd love sitting next to the writer's table because the jokes they told and the laughter that they brought to it, I enjoyed that. Billy Wilder would try and capture me while I'm walking around the studio and doing all of this. He wanted to talk to me. 
over and over again. And he wanted to know, what is it like to be born in the Midwest? What is it like at the university at UCLA? What was it like being a doctor's daughter, etc.? And when I read the script about being a aspiring writer is the character, it was very important for him to cast somebody that you would believe would be a possible writer in the future. So he wanted to hear how I expressed myself, how I spoke, the language I used. All of that convinced him that people would believe that. And it was very interesting. Edith Head, who was doing the wardrobe at that time at Paramount, she picked out a lot of outfits and I would go to the set, show them to Billy. He'd say, no, 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 no. I like what Nancy had on yesterday. That was when I visited the set. It was my own clothes. And by the way, I did not have a great wardrobe, but it was me. Everything about how brilliant he was when you think about it. Everything that he wanted was simply that girl that he talked to on the lot and who she was. To be in one of the greatest films ever made is an extraordinary happening. It's rewarding and it's kind of scary. (laughs) But it's such an opportunity to sit with the gift of these very, very talented people. I mean, Bill Holden. We did four pictures together, by the way. I thought that was so amazing because this was really almost towards the end of the studio system. Studios pairing a man and a woman in several films together didn't happen too often by the 50s. That struck me as really fascinating, and I'd love to see it because who doesn't love Bill Holden, of course? (laughs) We are big Bill Holden fans on this podcast. Well, I want you to know, so am I, and so was I. We became really, really close friends. Now, for instance, we were out doing Force of Arms. for This was for Warner Brothers. I was in my early pregnancy, my first pregnancy, and I had nausea in the morning. And he would hold my head when I <laughs> threw up. He was so dear. He was taking care of me. And also, I can say this, it's hard to understand that we love to hug each other and kiss. That we did this so spontaneously and naturally and with great pleasure, let me tell you. Now, he made a small move to be more, to go a little further during the shooting of Sunset. And I made it so clear that just was not going to be me. And it was out of the question. And he never, ever did it again. Let me end about Bill. We were friends and saw each other every couple of years at a party or an event. And we loved to say hi. And we would talk to what's doing, what are you going and what's happening. One day, Alan Livingston and I were flying from California to New York, got off the plane, and we were going to get another plane to London. And we were walking down a hallway to connect to the second flight at Kennedy Airport. And all of a sudden, I heard this voice from way down the hall, the other way, Nancy. And I turned around and I said, 
Bill. I left Alan standing there. And the two of us ran down the hall, embraced. And he said, my God, I haven't seen you for two years. I hear you're remarried. Are you happy? And this went on, that kind of thing. And we hugged, we kissed. We were just delighted. And all of a sudden, a man walked by and he tapped us on the shoulder. And he said, excuse me. He said, I just have to tell you, this is better than watching an old movie. Is that nice or what? I love that Samantha and I can cross off on our bucket list, meet someone who has kissed Bill Holden. (laughs) We've done that now. (laughs) I have to admit, the very first time I saw Sunset Boulevard, it really didn't strike me as this grand, amazing film. But the thing is, I adore Billy Wilder. He has always been, will always be my favorite director. Yes. But that movie didn't do it for me at first. And what it really took was, it was just the plot itself that I was a little bit like, ugh, it made me squeamish in this day and age. But what really took changing my mind was watching it on the big screen at the TCM Film Festival with you introducing it in... I believe that was 2019. Yes. Was it in El Paso? No, that was in Hollywood at Drummond. Yeah. And that was just such a fun experience. And I remember when Bill Holden comes out of the pool shirtless, this one older woman just starts whistling and the whole crowd laughs. It's really one of those amazing crowd experiences. It took me really learning about movies to appreciate a movie made about a movie. Yes. By the way, every time or many times when I'm invited to a screening and they ask me to speak, one of the first things I ask is, who is seeing this only on TV, not in the theater? And there'll be hands that come up. And then I ask, who has seen it on the big screen in a theater? And the hands were up. I said, this film was designed to be on a big screen. Billy would have written it differently if it were on a small screen because it's a big theme. There are big performances. And when you push them down into smaller space, it diminishes what has been originally created. So for those people in the audience who had only seen it on TV, I said, well, now you're in store for what this movie really is. You'll get, you'll get it. Hi everyone, Kristen here. Like what you're hearing? Then consider supporting us via Patreon. Like Ticklish Biz fans Beverly, Denisha Herrera, and Peter Blitzstein. You get access to exclusive content, including two Patreon-only series, merchandise, and special gifts. You can even be a guest on a future episode. We've also revamped our tiers and are over halfway to compelling Samantha to watch either The Godfather or Little Women, as well as episodes devoted to the 1976 biopic Gable and Lombard, It's a Howler, and the 1970 Weepy Love Story. All your support goes right back into making Ticklish Business the premier podcast for classic film lovers. That's patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Now, back to the show. You've worked with some of, not just heavy hitter directors, but just some of the heavy hitting actors of the era, whether that's Bill Holden, Randolph Scott, John Wayne. Those are some titans of acting and reading your book. We talk a lot on this podcast about actresses who 
experienced so much abuse or so many different things that they had to keep quiet or they were labeled difficult. You're talking about up in telling JFK you're not down for a relationship in the way that he wanted it. You have that moment in the book where you talk about Bill Holden and setting the tone with him. Were you ever intimidated by any of your male co-stars? I was so impressed. It was so many golf claps reading every page. (laughs) Oh, I'm delighted to hear that. No, John Wayne, I thought would be a very interesting experience for me at a time in my personal life that was not going very well. And I thought this will give me a relief. I read the script and I thought this is not a good script. This movie will be shown on Saturday nights, uh, the second film. (laughs) To be in Hawaii, to get to know this icon of the 20th century was an amazing experience for me. And we became very good friends. John never, by the way, people on the set called him Duke. I never called him Duke. I thought it was an affectation. So I only called him John, and he never corrected me, which was interesting. He understood the camera and the spontaneity of acting. Well, he and Bill. He was an artist. He understood it. He graduated from SC, and I never thought of him as being overly... If he said he graduated from high school, I would have believed him. He was not the typical university graduate. But also there was a great mystery about him. He never, ever stepped over that line with me, ever. But he opened his arms to an affection and a friendship that lasted forever. There was a mystery about him, and I've written about it. It's something that I never quite understood. I find it really interesting that you've worked with such a variety of stars at different points in their career. And you talk about John Wayne and you were in a movie with John Wayne pretty much, I don't want to say towards the end of his career, but I mean, he had been making movies for decades at that point. And then you turn around and star in one of Tab Hunter's first movies. (laughs) You mean Battle Cry? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, but it was Aldo Ray and I who had the relationship. And Aldo, first of all, he had, this is going to sound very self-centered, but he had a crush on me. And it was at a time when my marriage had really generally collapsed. And it was rewarding in a way, but we never followed through. Don't misunderstand. But he loved our love scenes and he insisted on doing them over and over again. (laughs) He said, no, 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 that's not quite right. I want to do it again. We became very close. I remember when he died, I wept. There was something very endearing about him. So I've had these relationships with various actors. Bing Crosby was much too old for me. The first, you know, Canadian Pacific, that was much too old for me. William Holden was only 10 years older than I, or maybe 11, but it was in that area. So that made a certain sense. Aldo also was reasonably near my age. John Wayne was too old, much. It's interesting how they cast things in that time. Billy Wilder, the movies that most people really 
lovingly point out the age difference is Gary Cooper and Audrey Hepburn in Love in the Afternoon. So Hollywood still that way. I think we still get actresses who are at least a good 10 years. Tom Cruise doesn't ever have a co-star that's the same age as him. There's a who's who of people that pop up in your book. I love you talking about Joan Crawford. Joan is one of those actresses that lives in myth at this point with so many different stories about her. Did you ever get starstruck in, in your time in the industry? Or is there a star that you never got to meet that you wish you had? That's an interesting question. I can't really think of anybody at the moment off the top of my head. I was always open to working with whoever they put me with. It's too bad about the movie with Bing because I was really much too young and it destroyed the movie. It hurt the movie and that's unfortunate. So that was not good casting, but of course Sunset Boulevard lit a flame and everybody wanted to put me in a movie. The really interesting thing about Mr. Music though is it's cited as the first movie where Bing is paired with a non-singing actress. But then you also have, this is Peggy Lee's first credited performance. So I think that's a really amazing female yeah. singer that came up right around that same time, which is fantastic. You know, Bing had very, very cold blue eyes. And when I was exploring the lot before I started making films there, but I was a starlet, quote unquote. I would see him on his bicycle, not even pedaling, just pushing himself along. And he was surrounded by a group of cronies who were laughing at everything he said, funny or not. And there was this cold blue eyes that, that were keeping a distance so when we were working together, it began to change. The whole cast treated me like a charming child, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Let me tell you one interesting thing, though, about Bing. Alan Livingston, when I married him, was president of Capitol Records. He worked with Frank Sinatra. In fact, he created or recreated Frank's career and also occasionally with Bing, to do some standards. He said it was so fascinating that when you sent a new song to either one of them, the first thing that Bing wanted to hear was the music. He wanted to hear how he could use his voice. Frank, the first thing he wanted to see were the lyrics. He wanted to know what he was going to sing about and how he could express them. And then he would listen to the music. It's so interesting and so different. But when you hear them sing, if you do in the near future, just remember that because you'll hear Frank being expressing what the song is about in the way he uses his voice. And you hear Bing being this great baritone. It's fascinating. I know some singers would sing live over their tracks while they were filming movies. Like I know Judy Garland is one of those stars who would do that. Did you ever hear him sing while you were filming Mr. Music? Was it a different experience than hearing his records? I played the piano. I was very musical. My mother wrote an operetta. So I've come in from a very musically 
interested and gifted people. I loved to attend when he was recording the songs for the movie. I'd sneak in and stand in the back of the soundstage, and there would be the orchestra and bang. I was not impressed with the score of the movie, but it was interesting watching him sing. He knew what he was doing every minute, and he knew what he was doing in making as an actor as well. We became great friends, by the way. We had a lot of warmth that we ended up with toward each other. Well, I know you've talked openly about they considered you for Samson and Delilah, which the role went to Hedy Lamar. Is there a role that you wanted that you wish you had gotten? I can't think of one. I was not competitive about um, <laughs> saying, no, don't give it to her. Give it to me. We don't often use the term on this podcast, but it's badass. I love it. I love we know the classic film stories of Betty Davis and your Joan Crawfords that are doing anything to get a role. I love that there wasn't that competitiveness with you. Sounds I'll, like you let the system work for you yes. rather than working for the system. <laughs> As a result, did a lot of movies that were not that great. Working at Disney was an extraordinary experience. That whole list of pictures were amazing. And I came to Disney at a time when really they had made a lot of films on very moderate budgets. And I think Treasure Island was one of the few great successes they had, other than, of course, the extraordinary animation pictures, which are timeless and works of art. Pollyanna, Walt Disney called me in Mallorca. It's a long story said, you're kidding. Walt Disney is not on the phone. He said, yes, Mr. Disney wants to speak to you. And he said, Nancy, we have a new project and we have many stars. We're spending a lot more money than we usually do. And we want every role to be played by a wonderful performer and a star. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to, I wrote this down because I wanted to be sure that people understood this. Okay. He said, we've got Haley Mills, who is John Mills' daughter. I knew who John Mills was. He said, she's enormously gifted. And from Disney, he must know. I understood that. And he said, now we have Jane Wyman, Richard Egan, Carl Malden, Adolph Manjou, Agnes Moorhead. And he said, there's one more role and we want you. So I said, well, when are you going to make it? I had not made a movie in three or four years. He said, well, we're going to start shooting. This was the middle of July. He said, we're going to start shooting at the end of August, middle of August through the middle of September. And I said, well, I'm coming to California with my two children to be with my parents. I'll be there in August anyway. I have somebody who takes care of the children who can bring them back to put them back in school while I finish the film. So I said, okay, I'll do it. That was a very fascinating experience. Disney Studio, the lot, was like no other than I had ever worked on. It was so clean. Everybody knew each other from the grips to the directors to the whatever executives. 
Everybody called Walt Disney Walt. He insisted that they did. It's hard for me really to describe, but it was different. I had a lovely experience with Pollyanna. And then when they called and asked me to do The Absent Minded Professor, it was at the same time, August, part of September, I could do it easily. And that was a fabulous experience. I'm fortunate to live relatively close to the Disney studios. I've been there a couple of times. I totally understand what you say about it being different because maybe because I'm just an old Hollywood person that like geeks out over this person walked on this ground, but it's got a very different vibe than if you walk on the Warner's lot, which definitely feels more like a lot sound stages and the facades and all of that. It's a very different feeling. So I am so excited that you got to talk about Disney. (laughs) Aside from maybe Tommy Kirk, your Disney filmography is so massive. There are so few stars that got to star in so many of those great live action films. I didn't do them all at once. It was (laughs) a long time. I was not married to my second husband when I did Pollyanna. I met him when I did The Absent-Minded Professor. He lived in California, so some friends of ours introduced us, and that began it. Then I would go back to New York, and he would visit me constantly when he came into New York when he was running Capitol. He'd take me to dinner to the theater, and this slowly began to evolve into a romance. When I married him, we came back to Los Angeles, And then I did a number of more films, but they were not every six months. They were every year and a half or two. But it was a nice way to end my movie career. You also embraced television, which a lot of stars were resistant to TV in the 1950s. But you got to do some great television work, including appearing on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which... I'm curious what that was like to work with Hitchcock because a lot of actors loved working with him. Some did not like working with him, especially on the TV show where there was a lot of other moving parts compared to making a film. My experience was interesting. There there was one scene where it's very long. It's like a close-up of me telling whatever the story. They shot it in one shot. But then for television, the editors break it up so that when I'm saying something really important, you're looking at the other actor, a close-up of him. It was poorly edited is really my criticism. Because I remember doing a scene where I thought, oh my God, Nancy, you hit it on the head. And then when I saw it, it was lost. It shows you how important editing is, by the way. And by the way, it's important to know that filming is so different from theater. Billy Wilder, for instance, I still have the script. He describes, not on every page, but on some pages, the dialogue on the left and what you were seeing on the right, what the camera was showing you. It's fascinating. He was a genius about understanding the importance of that. 
a wonderful quote from him when Andrew Lloyd Webber did the musical of Sunset Boulevard. Billy said, it's my movie in a permanent long shot. You don't go to a bookstore and buy a movie script. You buy great theater. You buy Shakespeare and Moliere and Tennessee Williams, etc. You don't buy a, a movie script because it's the camera that tells so much of the story. You can come in and do a close-up at the end of a scene, somebody with one little tear coming down their cheek. Actor doesn't have to say a thing. The camera tells the story. I just love hearing about that. I love hearing <laughs> Kristen, you hit the nail on the head as far as I love hearing about Alfred Hitchcock's presence as much as anybody else, too. You bring up Billy Wilder talking about how Betty should be dressed. My mind went straight to Alfred Hitchcock and Eva Marie Saint talking about how her character should be dressed in North by Northwest. It's really interesting hearing exactly what these genius directors like to focus on in their films. Yes, it is interesting. So great that I drew that parallel and then you worked with him too. This is why, Nancy, you're the best. We're so honored that... We got to hear you tell these stories. And of course, they're all written down in your amazing autobiography, A Front Row Seat, which people can go buy or check out at their local library, however you get books nowadays. It's coming yes. out somewhere between the 11th and 17th of October. If you go on Amazon, you can order it. You can pre-order it. My pre-order is already in. Thankfully, I got to read it early. So, haha, on everybody else listening to this who has not gotten to reading it. But it's great. Is there anything else you want to let listeners know about? I want everybody to really feel good, not suffer from these floods and drought. I want the world to settle down and be more reasonable and give me peace. <laughs> I'm all for that. I second that. I would like it to not be a million degrees anymore. That is going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, you can follow Ticklish Business on all social media platforms, including TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Those are the two. If you're listening via Apple Podcasts or you just want to help us out, get more eyeballs on the show, leave us a review. That really helps. And of course, it always helps to keep the lights on at Ticklish Biz HQ through our Patreon at patreon.com slash Ticklish Biz. We have all sorts of amazing bonus content, including our Being Elvis six-week series that we did. We are gearing up to talk about Andrew Dominic's new movie, Blonde, which I have a lot of thoughts on. All sorts of fun things coming up there. And we would love to get some goals accomplished, including maybe having Samantha watch A Little Women or The Godfather, or what was the other thing? An Anna I Karenina? Watched, I haven't watched any version of Anna Karenina, you guys. I need we've, my film education. We've contemplated doing a whole Anna Karenina series. I don't know if that's a good idea or a bad idea, but it's all at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And as always, please head over to our website, which has some great reviews from our new intern, Audrey Cornell, at ticklishbiz.com. But we will be back in two weeks with a new episode. Till then. <laughs>